Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we speak with metallurgical engineer Paul Cantonwine about Admiral H.G. Rickover, the father of the nuclear navy. Along the way, we also discuss solar roadways, uncomfortable interviews, and zirconium refining. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 102, Admiral Rickover, February 18th, 2016. So, Adam. Do you think you'll ever be known as the father of the solar-powered roadway? Uh, I really doubt it. <laughs> is, is, is that because you don't work on roadways or just you don't want anything to do with a solar-powered roadway? I, I, I think we've talked about my opinions of solar-powered roadways in the uh, in the past. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I'm not a big um, – Solar freaking roadway guy? I'm not a big believer <laughs> in the solar freaking roadways. <laughs> Okay, or maybe a skeptic is is the more uh, the the more appropriate term, right? Right, and and do you think you'd be known as the father of some other innovative technology? Yeah, really, no, no. I'll I'll, I'll apply what what everybody else has done, and and I'll be happy that way. Oh, you know, okay, incremental improvement. <laughs> well, we, we we can still wait until you get the uh, the automated uh, brewing uh, kit together, and maybe you can. Be known as, as the father of that. I could be the father of that. That that is true. <laughs> that is true. The father of automatic beer. If uh, fifteen thousand other people don't beat me to it, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of people kind of working that area. It, it is yes. There is a lot of competition in that area. Yeah. Now beer roadways is probably a bad idea. Uh, that's a bad idea. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, once I'm we have sure. autonomous cars, it's not such a big deal. It's just a waste of beer. Well, it depends on what you intend. You know, I'm thinking like tap lines into the car so you have a constant uh, tap line going. I like this idea. Yeah. (laughs) Beer-powered roadways. All right. There you go. Well, you know, from uh, time to time, there are engineers who apply an appropriate set of technical skills and personality traits uh, to a challenging problem. And they, they apply these skills and traits uh, in such a way that they revolutionize the field in which they work. One such individual was Admiral H.G. Rickover, who became known as the father of nuclear power. And so uh, in this episode, we're going to learn a little more about Admiral Rickover and his thoughts on the profession of engineering. And our guest for this episode is Dr. Paul Cantonwine, a materials engineer who recently published a book examining the principles and philosophies of Admiral Hyman George Rickover. Uh, The book is titled The Never-Ending Challenge of Engineering, Admiral H.G. Rickover in His Own Words. Paul, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so delighted that you were able to uh, join us for this episode to uh, tell us a little more about Admiral Rickover. Uh, But before we get into into his life and career, uh, do you mind if we ask a few questions about your life and career? Sure. Okay. Well, one of the uh, standard questions we ask our guests is, what got them interested in engineering? Well, uh, I'll probably give a standard answer, which is, you know, first of all, I was good at 
math and science. Right. And I wasn't that good at English and spelling. <laughs> okay. Right. So, uh, you know, that just kind of led me to, uh, to the field of engineering. I, I, I can't say that I got into it because, you know, you know, any particular, um, you know, real desire to, you know, change the world or anything like that. It was, sure. you know, I had kind of a, I, I guess, you know, that was where my talent was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, so. and did you have any relatives or contacts in the engineering field? Did you know what an engineer did or did it just sound like a neat career? I, I didn't really have a, you know, a relative that was an engineer. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really have a great uh, grasp of what it, what it really entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I didn't have a, you know, a, you know, kind of a, a real good understanding of what kind of engineer I wanted to be when I went to college either. Right. Um, so kind of well, made the, de- made the decision when I got to college. Okay. Well, I note that, uh, as an undergrad, you, you received your bachelor of science in materials engineering. Yeah, it was actually metallurgical engineering at the time. Okay. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, engineer, engineering of metals, um, and it's kind of developed now into material science and engineering. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and so why that field? Why not, uh, you know, civil or, or electrical? Well, uh, you know, I kind of made the decision based on, um, you know, the, the, the first year engineering class that you take and, and all the, all the different disciplines kind of get up and pitch their their discipline they're kind of selling you what um you know their field sure and the, and the thing that that kind of caught my ear i guess about materials was that you know everything is made of materials mm-hmm. so i sort of figured that that <laughs> meant job security <laughs> everything is made of materials yeah so that was kind of how i got into it and i i don't regret it well, fantastic no. mm-hmm Fantastic. Now, once you received your bachelor's degree, you, in pretty short order, you went ahead and got your master's and, and a PhD uh, in, also in engineering. Uh, so was that the master plan from the beginning, or how did that decision evolve? Yeah, definitely not the master plan. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I graduated in 1990 with my, my BS and was kind of in the middle of a recession. Right. So... You know, there weren't a lot of companies that were just clamoring for engineers. And so, you know, I had I had the grades and decided to go to graduate school and, and really made that decision just to, you know, I think further my education and, and improve my job prospects. Um, didn't sure. go in to get a Ph.D. You know, I got my master's first, which mm-hmm. um, that certainly prolonged my my graduate education um, because, you know, you kind of lose some time getting a master's and then getting a PhD. But mm-hmm. were, you, were you at the same institution for both degrees? No. So I, you okay. know, I went, yeah. I, I went to Purdue uh, for my undergraduate and then I went to the university of Virginia for my graduate work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. But but you did get your master's and PhD at the same institution. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I know that people that start their master's at one place and then go somewhere else for their PhD, you sort of lose that continuity. You have to reintroduce yourself to the faculty and get up, up to speed on their way of doing research before you can get going. Yes, exactly. Now, what I did is in between my master's and PhD, I went to work for a year. Oh. So that, I kind of lost a little momentum there. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And so what motivated, after a year of work, what motivated you to go back for your PhD? Well, I kind of, um, you know, the year working was through my um, my research professor. So it was kind of a connection I made through him. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of on um, on a project that, that I then was able to bring back to the school and and kind of work on as a, as a PhD. So it was kind of a, you know, work, um, but also, um, you know, work on, on a project that I was actually going to use for my PhD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, and your PhD work, I believe was, uh, related to the nuclear power industry. And I note that you've, you spent a, a, most of your career in that industry. Yeah. Uh, well, so I spent most of my I've spent most of my working career, all of my working career, really in in nuclear power. Mm-hmm. My PhD though was actually in advanced high temperature materials. So, you know, I spent my my graduate work really working on advanced materials, and you know, it was really it was really interesting, but um, there wasn't a lot of application. Mm-hmm. So so when I finished. You know, I kind of made a conscious decision to actually kind of make a change and and work on more traditional materials. Um, so, I I I joined the um, the Navy nuclear program, um, and I was working in uh, basically performance of zirconium alloys. So it was kind of a little switch there, but um, and these are the alloys that are used to actually hold fuel pellets in reactors, right? Exactly. Okay. Right. Yep. So zirconium alloys are the the structural material of choice in the in the reactor core. Um, so this is in in an environment. It's you know in a light water reactor. It's high temperature water, high pressure, and then you're you're inside a neutron flux. You know, pretty high damaging neutron flux. And that's what I've always wanted to ask is. Is zirconium useful for both the high temperature or the neutron cross section? It's 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 really both. I mean, you have so in a uh, nuclear uh, light water reactor, you basically have to have a material that's resistant to corrosion. I mean, it's a severe corrosion environment: high temperature, high pressure water, um, and you you want to be sort of economic in your in in your absorption of neutrons. So you want a low cross section. You also, you know, need this corrosion resistance in addition to the structural, right? Mm -hmm. So that was why, you know, essentially kind of, you know, the main driver for development of uh, zirconium alloys, the zirconium industry was, was these, the, the fact that it had these three different, um, you know, good properties in, in that, in that environment. And what sort of role did you have uh, with the Navy working on nuclear reactors? Well, so 
So I was working at um, Bettis Atomic Power Lab. It's a it's a national lab, just just like Oak Ridge or Los Alamos, uh, but it's a very it's different in the sense that it's very focused uh, on the Navy nuclear program. So it doesn't have the only quote unquote customer. The only type of work it does is to support the the Navy nuclear program, and in large part, it's really. Um, uh, like a, um, you know, a, a vendor for the Navy nuclear program. So they, they do all the design work, you know, for the, for the reactor core, as well as the plant side. Um, they do, you know, the manufacturing, um, and you know, all those, all those things. Well, it, it, it's, I imagine it's been a busy decade or so because doesn't the new Ford class carrier and the Virginia class submarine have nuclear reactors? Yes. Yes, they do. Right. And would those have been developed at that kind of a lab? Yes, exactly. So uh, there are actually two laboratories that support the Navy nuclear program. It's Bettis Atomic Power Lab and then the Knowles Atomic Power Lab, which is in uh, New York. Hmm. And the reactors are designed at either at either place. Mm-hmm. So what was the culture change like for you going from an academic environment where usually it's you're working with a professor and you're pretty independent of what everybody else wants going to a military culture where you have to uh, be precisely integrated with, with what everybody else is trying to accomplish. Yeah, it was I would say it was definitely a culture shock. Um, and, but it was a good, it was in a good way. I wouldn't, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't, you know, uh, describe it in a negative way for me, you know, what, um, although I really enjoyed my graduate work, um, you know, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that I did there, but it, it, you know, you're often isolated in that environment and, you know, your the impact of your work is maybe in the future. Yes. You know, maybe not. You know, I mean, maybe you have no impact. You know. Yes. Um, but in you know in a in an organization that you know really has a you know a, a really strong mission, you know, it it was it was different uh, and. And basically one of the things I kind of recognized was that I had to learn how to make real decisions that had real impact. Um, and that was not something that, you know, you know, it was, it's hard to teach really. And it's not something that you, you get a real experience doing uh, PhD, you know, uh, research. Uh, so that was, that was kind of the, the thing, you know, the, the big culture shock was, actually having to work in teams mostly, you know, to make actual real decisions that had impact on, on other people. Yeah. And, and so do you have, looking back, do you have any insight into that? Because as a, as a graduate student, uh, normally you're rewarded for finding the various options and difficulties and you write a paper about that and, and yay, you get to, you have another publication. Right. Uh, versus some, you know, most engineering uh, organizations, 
they need to move forward with a project. And so now you have to decide between these competing ideas that both have, or multiple ideas that have merit. Uh, any insight into how you go about doing that when you're frustrated initially? Well, I don't know about, you know, sort of the, the process of going about doing that. I, I would say that um, one of the things that, you know, I think was kind of interesting, uh, you know, in a, in a government laboratory environment um, was that there was a very strong sense of satisfying the customer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so in the, in the Navy nuclear program, you've got, you've got the laboratories, but, but we really worked for the Navy nuclear program. Okay. And that, that Navy nuclear program was led by a four-star admiral. Um, okay. And that four-star admiral was basically the, uh, was, was basically Admiral Rickover. Okay. Um, so Admiral Rickover kind of built this whole program and he was the head of the Navy, uh, Naval reactors program. Mm-hmm. He, he was the customer. Okay. For the, for these, for these two vendors, these laboratories. Right. And I think it, you know, and we actually called them the customer, uh, which is looking back on it, I think kind of interesting. Um, but I do think that, you know, having that strong sense of satisfying the customer kind of does um, provide you the motivation that you need to kind of persevere through uh, maybe some difficulties in making decisions. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's that's kind of how I might <laughs> say it. Okay. Good enough. Well, uh, so you're you're working at at the Bettis. Uh, atomic power laboratory. And uh, I take it that it was during that period of time that you first became aware of Admiral Rickover. Well, yeah. So you, you, you know, you don't join the Navy nuclear program without becoming aware of, of Admiral Rickover. I mean, at the time this was 1999 and there were many, many people who had, uh, you know, worked there and, you know, potentially met, had met, uh, Admiral Rickover or, you know, had stories. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, his, his presence was, was certainly still there when, when I started, um, because he had such an impact on the program. He led the program and he, he basically started the program, you know, he's kind of like an entrepreneurial really in, in government. <laughs> um, and he led the program from, 1948 to 1982. Uh, so, you know, over 30 years. Sure. Um, and so his presence was really still felt. And a lot of basically the principles of the organization were still intact when I got there. So uh, the reason that I actually started to, you know, read about Admiral Rickover really was to try to understand the organization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt like, you know, understanding Rickover to some extent, you know, would kind of help me understand this organization and kind of my role in it. And, you know, how can I be, uh, you know, most effective and, and that sort of thing. Right. And so how did you go about learning more about Admiral Rickover? Well, it, you know, there was a, actually, there's been a lot written about Admiral Rickover. Um, 
So um, he he was obviously a, a fairly influential individual. So that's not too surprising. Yes, exactly. I mean, in the 1960s, I think he, you know, one of the certainly one of the most powerful men in America. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so you know, I started reading about Admiral Rickover. I start there were there's a, a couple of books written on the history of the Navy nuclear program. Um, and one of the, one of the great books that I read, and, and I'd say it's one of the best books on engineering that I've ever read, is called The Rickover Effect by uh, Theodore Rockwell, mm-hmm. who worked very closely with Admiral Rickover um, for the first 15 years of the program. It was basically about Admiral Rickover's influence, not only on, you know, the nuclear industry, but on American industry as a whole um, and how, you know, he was preaching quality control. He was preaching um, excellence in, in design and he was preaching, you know, considering manufacturing and design, you know, in the 1950s, well before, you know, these types of things were really kind of more commonplace. Um, and he was challenging American industry to really change. And, uh, so that was kind of the, kind of the gist of the, uh, of the book. And it's, it's a fascinating book because it's actually interesting. I mean, he, Admiral Rickover is a really interesting, uh, person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was, it's, it's easy to read because he, he's so interesting. Yeah. And, and one thing I, if you could speak to this, cause I, I don't think a lot of people, especially younger listeners, may appreciate that he he's something akin to a rock star of the era. You know, uh, I, I, wouldn't would you say that there really there really hasn't been many or pretty much anyone since who's been who's held the kind of seat in I would say like military and scientific culture that he has. I, I would say that his, um, I, you know, I think that's a fair kind of description. I mean, although I'm, you know, the, the, uh, you know, you equating him with a rock star, he probably wouldn't, he wouldn't appreciate, but, (laughs) um, but I think that his influence was, you know, very significant, especially in like the 1960s, as I was saying. I mean, he was he was sought after as a um, um, as a speech giver, you know, and his his influence, you know, uh, really kind of uh, went outside of you know his little te- technical expertise, you know, nuclear power. He he wrote. He wrote actually five books, and three of them were about American education. So in the 1960s, although he was, you know, this, you know, leader of the Navy nuclear program, he was out there talking about American education in not so nice ways um, necessarily. <laughs> and he was, he was, he was never one to mince words. Um, and you know, you know, so he had influence there. Uh, I mean. Uh, you know, in, in, you know, in, uh, sort of government, 
uh, as a whole. I mean, he 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 simply was not afraid to to really kind of go into any direction that he that he really felt he needed to go. Uh, from my understanding, uh, the closest analog that we have today might be an Elon Musk type person. Yeah. Yeah, and I've often I've often thought of him kind of like uh, Steve Steve Jobs as well, um, uh, but yeah, I think Elon Musk kind of yeah, absolutely. So so it's just for people who may not have ever heard of Admiral Rickover, that's that's the per, the kind of stature we're talking about here. Yeah, and the kind of I mean, as as innovative as we think SpaceX is. Uh, <laughs> The nuclear navy may be many times that. I mean, the impact of the nuclear navy in the 1950s. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think we can really appreciate. I mean, now, um, you know, as as if we were there living in uh, in that time. I mean, like you said, you know, I mean, he was on Time Magazine, 1954, when the the Nautilus was launched. Um, you know, he. He, you know, led the basically the development of the uh, civilian nuclear power um, at the shipping port uh, atomic power station, which which went critical or full power in 1957. And then, um, you know, right after Sputnik, one of the things that uh, President Eisenhower did was he took the Nautilus and went under underneath the North Pole. To basically show the Russians, hey, you know, you've got this this satellite, but I can I can put a you know a nuclear warhead right next to you. So, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, Paul, would you be able to sort of give us a little uh, uh, background leading into this, in the sense that when uh, Rickover started, he obviously was there was no nuclear power industry; he had to invent it. So. Where did he start and how did he get involved in the nuclear power industry and, and how did he get to the point where he could be the father of nuclear power? Yeah, so that's a that's a you know kind of fascinating story. I mean, you know, he really had two careers in the Navy. I mean, he 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 spent 63 years in the active Navy. Wow. He was active Navy for 63 years, longer than anybody in the, in the history of the, of, uh, of America. Um, and his, the first half of his career was, was pretty ordinary, relatively speaking. I mean, he, he made it, made captain, but was really never a captain of a ship. I mean, I think he had a command of a, of a minesweeper for a few months and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then he went into basically engineering only duty. And, and then in World War II, he, he played a significant role in, in, in basically building ships, um, he was elect. He was an electrical engineer uh, by education, um, and that was kind of where he he worked in in World War II. And then at the end of World War II, he was he was in charge of a of basically a maintenance um, uh, depot um, at Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the next year after after World War II ended, he found himself at Oak Ridge uh, in a year long training course uh, to learn about you know nuclear technology. Um, so so how did he get from 
Okinawa to this nuclear training course. This was there any particular reason he was chosen to go head up this uh, this investigation of nuclear power? There doesn't seem to be, or at least I haven't read that there was an obvious reason. Um, it you know it wasn't necessarily because somebody in the navy had this you know uh, keen understanding of what nuclear power could do for the navy. <laughs> you it, know, it was, it was more like somebody decided that somebody should go, and and he was the person sent. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he, like I said, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't necessarily well liked. Okay. He had his, <laughs> his issues. Um, and, you know, you might say that, you know, sending him off to Oak Ridge in the middle of East Tennessee was, was kind of getting him out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Navy, you know, had kind of been, you know, really was not involved with uh, nuclear technology at all during World War II. That was an army. Uh, the Manhattan Project was it was solely army. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they wanted, I think, you know, there was cer- certainly some recognition of that they needed to get uh, into this or at least to understand the technology. Sure. But, but once Rick over got to Oak Ridge, he recognized that, you know, what this could mean to the Navy and specifically if you could build a, 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 you know, a nuclear plant for submarines, you would revolutionize, um, the submarine and make it truly a, you know, a true submarine, uh, Mm-hmm. where it wouldn't have to come up. Um, at the time, you know, all the submarines were diesel, and so they they would have to surface every once in a while to to basically um, recharge the batteries. Um, and so they were vulnerable when they were on the surface. And with right. nuclear power, you know, that yeah, it totally eliminates that, that need. And was the thought from the very beginning uh, – Enhancing submarines' capability as opposed to, say, surface uh, ships? I think uh, his – I think he, he understood that the submarine was was the the ship that, you know, you kind of want would, – would, would be revolutionized. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you would, you would revolutionize a submarine if you could put a nuclear power plant into, into it. The surface ships, you know, um, you know, is not as, as revolutionary, you know, it, it, you know, it eliminates the need for, you know, an oil tanker, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, but, uh, so I'd say, yeah, his, his vision initially, you know, was always recognizing the value of, of making a submarine nuclear. Now for somebody who became so well known as a leader in nuclear power, uh, I note that his, uh, uh, I believe he uh, he attended the uh, Naval Academy. Yes, and, that's right. And I think he started. I I think I read that his his freshman year he was like in the top I don't know top half of his class, but wasn't you know at the top, and and he graduated in the top say twenty percent of his class. Right. But but was not exactly the uh, you know the whiz bang math expert you know or or or. Uh, 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 you know, logic expert scientist that that was going to revolutionize the world. So, is is there you know any indication about how 
he was able to to uh, leverage his own skills to be to become this person that could revolutionize the nuclear industry. Yeah, I mean, it's you know he he basically graduated 107th out of uh, 540 uh, you know midshipmen. You know, not I mean, like you said, you know, I mean, it was it was on the high uh, you know on the high side, but not certainly no gave you no indication of what he was going to do. And I'd say there were a couple things that kind of allowed him to develop. Uh, and that's, you know, he, you know, he was not the, the stellar student. Um, his, I would say his best, um, uh, you know, subjects were, were actually English and history and not math. Um, but he had a, an incredible work ethic and, um, he had ambition, you know, the desire to, to improve. Mm -hmm. But I think the one thing that really kind of allowed him to develop, um, as an engineer, as a leader was that he had a love for learning and he never stopped. You know, one of the, there, there's stories of him on, on his ships when, uh, when he was a, you know, an ensign and lieutenant and, you know, when everybody else was, was playing cards you know, he was in his, in his bunk room studying. I mean, you know, he was taking classes and he was, you know, uh, he spent his sort of free time, you know, really developing his mind. Now that, that also kind of, you know, <laughs> made him a little unusual, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily socially the, you know, uh, life of the party. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, that wasn't, you know, <laughs> you know, um, so he didn't connect with with people necessarily in that way, in in that real social way. Um, right. But I'd say you know that you know when he graduated, he graduated gonna on the high side, but he didn't stop learning, and that's kind of what what I think kind of made him enabled him to really. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. it, it, in addition to in addition to his ability to overcome or or understand the technical side. Uh, you, there's a, a story in in the uh, the book that talks about some of his exposure to the more practical issues of dealing with people. Uh, right, and, and, and you talk about the uh, uh, the time that one of his ships uh, developed a cracked condenser tube, and and what that taught him about dealing with people. Yeah, I would say that I would put that crack in the in the quotes, right? Sure. Uh, because this was a. You know, he was a young ensign at the time. You know, this is like his first um, first uh, assignment, and he had you know um, some uh, some folks under him, uh, non non commissioned uh, uh, sailors under him who were working for him, um, and you know they reported to him that there was this condenser that had a crack in the in the tube, and this was going to mean Oh, you got to replace it, and it's gonna. They were they were getting ready to leave a, a port, I guess, and and it's never good to to go to the captain and you know, you know we can't leave. Okay, we got this this problem. Sure. And um. And, and so he he initially took, you know, the sailors' words, and then after thinking thinking about it and remembering that the previous night, all the all the sailors and come in kind of late and, and maybe it drank a little too much, you know, right. 
he he ended up, you know, going and making his own observation of the of the particular tube uh, that that had the problem, and found there was no crack, and it was. I guess they had put a pencil mark or something on there just to, you know, kind of indicate that there was, you might, if you didn't look closely, you might say, oh, there it is. Right. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, obviously something he never forgot the story he, he told, but you know, it, it really kind of reinforced the, the need to, you know, kind of check, right. you know, not necessarily just take, uh, you know, someone's word for it, but you know, check. And maybe that you don't do that all the time, but you know, it's basically an indication that quality requires some oversight. Right. Um, so yeah, it was a lesson that, that he used, he, you know, he used that in, in all of his programs, you know? Yeah. I, I, we may get into it later on, but I know that he applied a lot of that to their, uh, part suppliers. It was always sort of a, uh, I don't know if the, the term trust but verify would be correct here, but he, he was always looking for a, a collaborative solution, but his his position was always you have to verify that people are doing what they say they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he that's absolutely right. I mean, he set up a whole division of his his program, you know, whose responsibility was to, to do that. I mean, you know, uh, to maintain quality of their suppliers, which meant – auditing and visiting, you know, and checking, uh, over checking product when it came in, you know? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think too, at the time, you know, in the, in the fifties, that was new and it wasn't really that well received by his suppliers. Oh, I'm I'm sure. So this was in the era, in the era before we had you know Six Sigma, you know uh, lean manufacturing. Uh, was he familiar with Deming? Did they have any correspondence? I don't know, but you know he he had a lot of similar ideas. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so to, it sort of makes me wonder if there wasn't <laughs> some some uh, you know correspondence or you know, at least some recognition of of that of his work, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so your, your book is divided into several sections uh, in which uh, you, you allow uh, in his own words, you allow Admiral Rickover to explain his, his viewpoints on, on various things, including education and the Navy. Uh, But, but sort of the middle section, which I see is sort of the heart of the book uh, talks about engineering and practice. And I thought we might uh, sort of focus in on, on that area. And I, I note that you wrote, I believe it was in an article uh, about Admiral Rickover and not the book itself, but you, you noted that if Admiral Rickover had a mantra to shape a professional culture, it would have been, I am personally responsible. Can you say a few words about why he felt so strongly about individual accountability? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, I mean, he had this keen sense of personal responsibility, Um so if he was leading a team and, you know, something happened in his area, mm-hmm. he felt personally responsible uh, for, you know, the mistake or maybe, you know, and I'd say to some extent the success as well. But, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, 
I mean, I'm not sure how that that sense of personal responsibility developed, but it was absolutely the uh, the foundation, I think, of his kind of views of of um, of organizations. So you know what what he would do. Um, he set up his organization basically by, okay, um, you know, identifying a person who was responsible for for a project. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was is that they were responsible for every aspect of the project. So design, manufacturing, procurement, quality, all those aspects, that person was responsible yeah, so, he, he he didn't he didn't have six people responsible for delivering a ship. He had one person, and and if that person needed six people, that that was fine. But but he needed one person he could talk to and say, "It's your job to make sure that's done. You you are responsible." Exactly right. So it means you know, I mean, kind of setting up a, an organization that allows that person to to obviously meet to be successful. Um, and then holding them, you know, accountable. Um, so you give the responsibility and you hold them re- accountable to, to the goal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my, I, one of my favorite quotes, um, you know, Rick over quotes is that, uh, he, he would say this often, you know, everything in the world must be done through and by people. So he was very, he recognized the importance of individual contribution, you know, to actually getting something done. Mm-hmm. So he, he talks about uh, if as engineer as professional, and I think it's important to remember that it, uh, engineering as a profession, you know, as a uh, as like a, you know, to be on the level of say lawyers and doctors, this was fairly new. You know, it wasn't since the the beginning of the nineteenth. Uh, the 1900s that engineers started to develop this professional reputation as opposed to somebody who was just tinkering with the gears out back. Right. But, but he, he emphasized integrity and competence, uh, which are, are not surprising of a professional, but he also emphasized independence, which I found interesting. Can you say a few words about his view on, on an engineer's independence? Well, I think that, um, you know, he kind of uh, the way he approached, uh, you know, professionalism and and uh, you know pretty much uh, every aspect of of technology uh, education. He would he would kind of start from a historical pers- perspective, and you know with professionalism, you know you were mentioning lawyers, doctors, um, you know they have that kind of history of of being you know, considered a, a professional and, and, and those folks were essentially independent. I mean, they were kind of, and, uh, you know, they were kind of, uh, uh, you know, essentially small business peoples, you know, uh, they owned, uh, their, um, their business, you know, and even I think in, in, in the UK, I think, uh, the lawyers or barristers or, uh, you know, they cannot be employees uh, even today, you know, right. and and then there's solicitors maybe that can. I can't remember maybe or uh, maybe I'm opposite, but right. Uh, but there was there's there's always been that sort of sense of independence and having a 
being able to provide an independent judgment, you know, um, to a problem or to a client. Um, and, and for engineers, that's, you know, we work in organizations, some, some large, some small. Um, but for the most part, you know, I'd say most of us work in large organizations. And so there's, there's a little conflict there, uh, because, you know, we're not independent in that sense. You know, we don't work for ourselves. Um, but but there's still a recognition or an understanding that the engineer is going to make decisions based on, uh, you know, safety, the, or, you know, organization's best interests as far as, you know, uh, uh, cost uh, and maintainability. And, and ser- again, to what you were talking about earlier uh, Serving the customer, that whatever the right. customer's needs are, that that engineering decisions will be made and as to as to best accomplish that goal. Yeah, I, well, I would say that a good organization will uh, create a culture that allows engineers to kind of act independently and and, and make those decisions based on you know integrity, safety, um, you know those sorts of things. And, you know, honestly, that doesn't always happen today, right? I mean, you know, pretty much, you know, every month there seems to be some, you know, scandal, uh, you might say. I mean, I'd say the most recent one is the the Volkswagen uh, um, emissions emissions scandal. Right. Uh, You know, and I, to me... That's simply an example of, of a breakdown in, in culture where engineers have have been pressured to make decisions that weren't, you know, kind of fall into this, what I would call professional uh, realm, you know. Um, and that's that's what happens to organizations when they when they don't create cultures that allows engineers to to be professionals. They they kind of run into, I think, problems. Right, right. And so uh, how did Rick overview this whole issue of culture? Well, I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I, he, didn't, he didn't really use the word culture, although he talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, people in, in the government and in industry, you know, they recognized the excellence of, of the Navy nuclear program but they didn't understand how he did it, you know? <laughs> and so they were, people would come to him, how, how are you doing this? How are you creating this, this organization that, that's so successful, right? And he would, ju- he, he, when, when, they, when that happened, you know, he would talk about cultural things. He wouldn't use that word necessarily, but that's, you know, that's exactly what he was talking about. So um, I've got a, maybe a little excerpt. Um, and this is, this is, um, this is from like 1954. Okay. He's still pretty young, 54. Um, and you know, he's talking about how he, choo- how you go about and choose people for his organization. Mm-hmm. So this is, I'll just read this, these two paragraphs. Okay, what I look for in an officer is a high degree of intelligence, enthusiasm, willingness to accept responsibility, 
and the ability to carry through, to get things done in his own way and despite obstacles. Our work is so new and so vast in its scope, it is increasingly so rapid that we must have people who are capable of dedicating themselves to a cause without regard to the effort or the hours necessary. We attempt to instill the idea of total responsibility in each individual, that he is personally responsible not only for his own specific part of the job, but for everything we do. A true sense of responsibility once instilled in the individuals of an organization will, in a short time, make that organization stand out from its competitors to an extent impossible to achieve by mere technical or professional superiority. <clears throat> so, you know, the, you know, he's not talking about, uh, you know, any sort of process or, you know, um, you know, sort of way of organizing. I mean, he's talking about, you know, the people's capabilities. He's talking about instilling responsibility, taking responsibility for actions, you know, yeah. and, you know, the real cultural type of type of things. Would you say <clears throat> fanaticism is probably an adept word? I think that that certainly could have been used. Uh, yeah. In, 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 and I think that there were a lot of people that, that would talk about Rick over and the people who work for him as kind of fanatical. Yeah. And, and to the extent that he talks about personal responsibility, can you say a few words about how he selected people that got involved in his program? Oh, I've been wanting to ask this question because I've heard so many anecdotal stories. Uh, yes. You know, are they all true? <laughs> <laughs> They're, I would say there's a lot of truth in them. Okay. So, you know, so this is, this is head of a large, say organization, right? And, you know, this organization is, is hiring people, you know, young incense, um, into the program to be operators of a nuclear power plant for their ships. And so they're, you know, you're talking about, every year probably hundreds of people that they're actually hiring and to hire hundreds of people you kind of have to interview you know even more right, right? every single you know ensign that that was hired in to operate a nuclear power plant um on a ship had to go through an interview with admiral rickover i mean it, by the end of his career he had interviewed you know, 15, 20,000 people. Right. Um, and every single one of those people remember the interview. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not, you didn't, you didn't have an interview with Admiral Rickover and not remember almost every single detail of, of the, of the interview, because, you know, the stories that you hear before the interview kind of, kind of heightens your, I think, senses. And then you go through the interview and, um, you know, the, the chair with the cut off, uh, yeah. legs front. Absolutely true. You know, <laughs> it was every, a written test, wasn't it? In that chair? Uh, no, that was, so the chair would have been in his office and, 
uh, he would have sat you in front of his desk and you would have been sitting in this chair rather uncomfortably. And then he would ask you a few questions and often they would be maybe thought of as inappropriate today, um, based on the stories. Right. Um, and he would make you uncomfortable. That was really the, I think his objective, uh, and to see, you know, how you might react in, in an uncomfortable situation. And I think, you know, his, his motivation for that really was, you know, I'm going to give you responsibility for the nuclear reactor on a, I mean, a submarine, there's a hundred, hundred men work, you know, working and relying on the safe operation of that. And so they're, you know, their lives are in your hands. So, you know, it was a serious, a serious job. And so that was sort of his technique, I think, to, you know, weed out the, the folks he didn't think, you know, would, would perform. It reminds me of the, uh, the interviews, uh, portion of the movie men in black mm. mm-hmm. where, you know, they're intentionally put in uncomfortable play. It's the people who thrive in the uncomfortable environments that are chosen. Right. Right. I, th- I would say that, th- yeah, that's, that's kind of what his, what he was doing. And, and was it, <clears throat> I've also heard that as much as it was the concern for the safety and the, um, well-being of the crew, that a, a big a big player in his obsession with safety and quality was it would only take one accident to kill the program. Oh, absolutely right. You yes. know, you bring the ship into New York City and melt down a reactor. No more nuclear submarines. Yeah, no, I think that that yeah the the consequences of a of a you know, a problem, even if it, if even, even if it wasn't really, you know, a big safety concern, you know, the consequences of a of failure were, you know, yeah, shut down the program. And, you know, that's essentially what happened to the army when they, when they had an accident in one of their reactors that they designed in, you know, 1961, you know, you don't, you Is know, that the one in Idaho. Yeah, right. That shot the control rod. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in in uh, looking over uh, uh, this number, large number of people, he was he was obviously interviewing a lot of people. But at some point, he had to give people managerial authority. Uh, and he, Admiral Rickover certainly had some opinions about uh, management and and management of of engineers. So I, I guess the, the you know what what were his thoughts about engineers stepping into the role of managers, and and how that might differ from what we have come to know as modern management theory. Yeah, I mean he he was definitely uh, you know his uh, he, he his viewpoint I would say would be that um, to effectively manage technology, you know the 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 manager. He called them, you know, he thought of himself as an administrator, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, but that that person should, you know, should have some, you know, significant knowledge of the technology. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the reason I think is 
you know, in nuclear power in particular, you know, part of the reason is the consequences of maybe making a decision that, you know, uh, didn't make sense technically. Um, so I, I think his, his view, you know, relative to, you know, technology that, that might be considered dangerous, um, which, you know, honestly, any, I would say significant engineering producing technology is, you know, dangerous in, in ways. Sure. Um, that, yeah, you know, you need somebody who, who understands it, um, mm -hmm. to manage it. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, somewhere in, in the book, it, it talks about his, uh, his not so kind opinion of modern management, uh, that, that, that you could throw someone in and they could, they could uh, manage the manufacture of dog food or the production of light bulbs uh, as easily as they would, would uh, oversee a, a nuclear reactor. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a story that he, I, th I think one of the, one of the instances that he uh, interviewed um, had a management degree and, and thought quite highly of himself. And, and I think had told the Admiral that, you know, with what he knows in six months, he could, he could manage GE, um, you know, uh, at the time, you know, obviously, and still a, a large, uh, highly technical organization. And, you know, he, he just found that to be, uh, I think a bit arrogant, you know, to, to think that way, you know, uh, yeah. but, you know, you, you learn a few techniques maybe in management and, and, you know, I would say not, I, personally you know don't wouldn't don't have that kind of strong feeling i think there's a lot of uh kind of uh tactics that you know uh, you can learn from, from other people about management uh but uh but you know to be you know arrogant enough that you know you can just manage anything with a few techniques is i think i think the thing he was kind of talking to yeah so in addition to managing other engineers and other personnel within the organization, there was a lot of Admiral Rickover's job that involved acquiring and procuring equipment and parts. And so people have said that Rickover was a demanding customer. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how he was a, a demanding customer? Yeah. So during World War II, uh, he was – he was in charge of basically electrical equipment on, on, uh, ships being built. So, you know, mm -hmm. he, he was responsible for basically, uh, procuring these, uh, this equipment and, um, you know, making sure that it performed to the specifications. One of this, one of the important specifications, as you can imagine, is shock resistance. Uh, so, you know, you want your equipment to, to be able to, you know, perform even after a significant shock. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he developed his, his own sort of shock resistant tests. Uh, he would have vendors obviously coming in and trying to sell their, their equipment to him. And you know what, this was a technique he used numerous times. He would, you know, he'd get the equipment and he would just, chuck it at uh at a radiator he called it the radiator test 
He would just okay. throw it at the radiator, right? <laughs> and see how shock resistant this was. And uh, oftentimes, and probably most of the time, you know, the thing would just bust and, you know, the vendor would walk out uh, kind of embarrassed. <laughs> right. Um, so that's, you know, that was, so, you know, beware when you, when you walked into, you know, Admiral Rickover's off, office. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. So there was a, there was a chapter uh, where you, you uh, provide a speech that he gave to, I can't remember exactly which industrial group, yeah. but he pretty much railed on them. Uh, for this entire speech about having an incomplete understanding of manufacturing processes and having poor quality control yeah. and not living up to their obligations and pretty much said, uh, I don't mean to upset any of you, but you don't know what you're doing. Right, right, uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how the speech was taken, but uh, certainly uh, the, the numbers, the, stis- sorry, the statistics he quoted as, as to the, the failure rate of their products was pretty alarming, yeah. especially if you were building a nuclear power plant. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that was so. The title of that chapter is "The Never Ending Challenge," which is oh, how ins- appropriate. Yes, it's inspired the the title of the book, um, and it is one of one of my favorite chapters. Um, it was a speech he gave to the Society of Metals, which is my uh, well former. Uh, you know, they've kind of morphed into um, ASM International, but. Um, so it's a, it's the society of metallurgical engineers at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it was all about, you know, quality control really, you know, and how lax, um, quality control in the, in, in the U S industry was at the time, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, just, you know, really, I think one of the things that kind of fascinated me about this particular chapter was, you know, I, I, I was growing up in the 1980s, you know, where quality control of, of, uh, Japanese, uh, car making was kind of really kind of making inroads into, into the U S market. And that was, you know, that was everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, to, to then find out, you know, about at least 20 years prior to that, you know, there was this man who was, you know, just saying, Hey, you know, if you don't do this, if you don't improve your quality, you know, they're going to be competitors. They're going to come out and, you know, undercut you. I mean, they're going to, they're going to, you know, take your market away. You know, basically that's what he was saying. You know, if you don't, if you don't start to, to think about this and think in this way and improve quality, then, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose out. And, you know, it was so true. Yeah. Um, so, well, and I really enjoyed the fact he was, he was coming up with uh, specifications that, that vendors were uh, submitting saying we, we meet all the, the uh, standards in this specification. And then uh, Rick over his own lab and own, own people would go te- retest it and show that, no, they were coming nowhere close to meeting those specifications. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so that kind of a, uh, you know, kind of highlights the, the importance of a, you know, someone who's purchasing, you know, a component, you need to, you need the ability to kind of overcheck, you know, you need that to check that quality of that, that component yourself. And that, that Mm -hmm. he, you know, he felt that responsibility to ensure that, that that component was going to perform, you know, in, in his, you know, in his nuclear power plant, 
just the way that it was designed to perform. And so that was why he, you know, sort of developed this, you know, quality system that, you know, so that he knew that if it went in, it was, it was going to perform. And so, yeah. Um, and it struck me that, that we weren't talking about very sophisticated devices. In many cases, he was just talking about simple valves and the yeah. valves weren't working. Right, exactly. And that was, you know, all of his technology development was really in, in the nuclear core, you know, mm-hmm. part. And, you know, he, when he started the program, he basically was planning on just buying the steam plant off the shelf, you know, and the, his expectation was it's just going to, it's going to work fine. We, we've been working with steam and for a hundred years, you know, mm-hmm. it should be no problem. But th- that's where he found the largest quality problems, you know, it wasn't in really the, the nuclear side because he was setting the specs and he was developing the, the suppliers and, you know, he had a lot of control there, but, but it was sort of this off the shelf stuff that he, that should have met the spec. That's all he wanted. Hey, <laughs> you said, you, you know, here's my spec. You say you meet it. That's all I'm asking you to do. And you, and you can't do it, you know? Right. So, so he had to like develop a whole basically organization to just, manage the quality of those those plant uh components yeah yeah and and so along those lines uh, uh, as we spoke about at the beginning uh of this episode uh, zirconium was an important uh alloy uh element for for making uh, materials can you just give us a, a quick overview of his development of the zirconium industry because it wasn't like he could just go out and uh, by zirconium element or uh, by zirconium components. Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, I'm I consider myself a zirconium metallurgist now. So you know, this story <laughs> is really fascinating. Um, you know, in 1948, uh, to to basically design a a nuclear reactor for a submarine, um, y- you needed a material that had a low cross section and. Steel wasn't stainless steel wasn't that material, you know. So, so he was searching for something that that would work. And zirconium, they they figured out that zirconium eventually had the had a low cross section. They were they were kind of fooled initially because zirconium always comes with about two percent hafnium. Hafnium has a very high cross section, and so you know they didn't. It took them a while to figure out that it was the hafnium that was causing the problem and the zirconium. Once they did, it was like, oh, this this material it it could have very good corrosion. It had reasonable structural properties, and then it had this low cross section. Mm-hmm. But the problem was they didn't have any real suppliers. It was it was really a kind of a laboratory curiosity at the time. This was say 1948, mm-hmm. and and when he made the decision to use zirconium. I mean, they were making hundreds of pounds. He needed like 30,000 pounds. <laughs> so that whole story of developing basically a supply chain, I mean, just fascinating, you know, uh, what what he had to do. And eventually what happened to, to actually build the Nautilus, he had to build his own zirconium plant at Bettis, <laughs> you know, so... That was that was the only way he was going to meet his schedule. 
Right. He had he had to basically say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna make this zirconium myself." And now, you know, he he recognized that you know, if we're gonna build more of these um, these submarines, I can't, you know, I can't be the zirconium supplier. So you know, he was always developing the suppliers, but but right. he, you know, it was really um, it, you know kind of a fascinating story. Not, I mean, just you know, being able to to take that kind of risk, you know, where you make a decision and you don't have a supply chain, you know, and the only reason he was able to do that really, I think is because he took the responsibility to, to make sure that it happened. You know, he felt that personal responsibility to, to, you know, find a way to get the zirconium that he needed. Right. Well, I, I tell you what, Paul, we've, uh, We've gone a bit over our normal hour here, so we should probably think about r- wrapping this up. You you wrote in the uh, the book that uh, uh, Admiral Rickover had no fear about speaking his mind on any topic. I know that in his later years, he spoke a lot on education. He spoke on technology. Uh, he even spoke on the meaning of life. Yeah. Uh, is there any sort of uh, parting thoughts you'd like to sh- share with our listeners about uh, Admiral Rickover's uh, view on life? Well, I think that, you know, he, he was a man of action, you know? Um, so if there's anything to kind of take away is, um, you know, that, you know, first of all, an individual can have a significant impact on, you know, society can, um, and it's, it's basically through, action you know and that's and that uh, i you know what what i like about that that sort of view is that you know that's what we do as engineers you know you know we're about taking action now he he was also i think uh, philosophical in the sense that you know i mean you don't just take action because you can you know you have it has to be the right thing to do uh and that's an important part of um, developing technology, you know, I mean, you don't just do it because you can, you do it because it's going to benefit, um, society It's going to benefit, you know, other, other people. Um, so I, you know, I think he, he had that strong sense of, um, that kind of sense, um, about technology development, but I guess that's what, you know, if he had a parting thought, it's, you know, don't sit on the, bleachers you know get out into the field of life and act right right and uh you know certainly his story is is inspiring in the sense that uh, he came from from fairly humble background uh was not you know top of his class uh, but just drove himself throughout his life and and through his own uh personal initiative was able to to revolutionize the world as we know it yeah exactly i mean and, and you know, I kind of come back to that 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 thought of you know the love of learning. Uh, I think it certainly enabled him to do that. You know, right? Terrific. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so very much for uh, for joining us on the Engineering Commons to uh, share us uh, share with us a little insight into uh, Admiral Rickover. And uh, for some of us, it will be an introduction to uh, his historical role, uh, both. Uh, for society and, and in the field of engineering and uh, also for sharing your own viewpoints and, and uh, history 
uh, as an engineer. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the opportunity. And and if someone should uh, want to get a hold of you, is there some place that we should send them? Yeah, you could uh, email me at um, p e Canton Wine C A N T O N W I N E at gmail dot com. Fantastic. Well, I will insert that into the show notes in case somebody's driving right now and can't jot that down. And uh, so, uh, Paul, thank you so very, very much for for, uh, joining us on the Engineering Commons. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.